It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Johara Tundok and Cavan. Discover the all-new Renault Arcana at Blackstone Motors that comes with a five-year warranty. Call us now to arrange a test drive or visit blackstonemotors.ie for more details. You're very welcome along to The Late Lunch here on LMFM. I can't believe it's Wednesday already. The week is flying. The weeks are flying. Um, but we have a packed show for you anyway. We're here until half past three. So do feel free to join us. We always love to hear from you. I'll give you the details to contact us. You can email us at info at lmfm.ie or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 658. Now coming up on today's show, Shanida Daly talks about life after rape. Her father, former Prison officer Harry was convicted of the highest rape charges in the history of the state. Also coming up, the sugar-free diet. Have you tried it? It's meant to be brilliant. They say sugar is poison. So let's see what it's like uh, when you don't put it in your system. Emily Hurricane on her new book, The Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal. And one school has left it to the students to decide how they want to spend their day in class. And that could be climbing trees or reading your tablet or anything. They're just, they're just leaving it to you to do. So n- needless to say, that school is hugely popular and the numbers are growing and also alpacas in tuxedos this is a new trend at weddings so lots coming up uh, but first Shanita Daly set up the face group Facebook group survivors side by side after her father former prison officer Harry Daly was jailed for 15 years but served 10 for pleading guilty to raping his daughter Shanita since she was a young girl and despite her high profile years of therapy and her support group Shanita knows that a conviction is not the end of the trauma no matter what and she's on the line now Shanita you're very welcome along to the late lunch how are you? Grant how are you Alison? I'm good thank you thanks very much for joining us Uh, Shanita a lot of people would know you uh, because you um, campaigned so much for you know mandatory prison sentences for rapists you've spoken um, at great uh, length about your father's own actions and you've been through so much therapy you've you've a book coming out in the new year the conviction is not the end isn't that right? Definitely not (laughs) Um, I think I've I've spoken to you about this before. The fact that you come out of the court and you've had your you know your day in court and he's gone to prison and all this and you come out and you're kind of high on the the sentence and all that and you come away and then you know you're living your life a little bit and then the bubble just bursts. Mm. It's yeah. kind of you know there's no one around you anymore because you know when the court case is coming up, there's people supporting you and all that and it's. Kind of like they say with a bride with her wedding. Do you know, after the wedding, there's the come down. It's the same with the court because no one ever contacts you again. 
you know, your guards are gone, anyone that's been there for you, any support, they're kind of for before the court and during the court times. And that's it. Yeah. And you have to live with that trauma. And I mean, uh, tell us a bit about your, your father. I mean, you're from Dublin, but you moved down to Shannon and he was a former prison officer in Limerick prison. Yeah. And at home, at home with your family, like he was, he wasn't just starting to sexually abuse you. He was also quite controlling, neglectful, physical violence. There was a lot there. Yeah, that's also a thing that I think brought up in the court. You know, it it can only be the stuff that they're um, charged with, rape, sexual assaults and all that. But it doesn't really come into the process that the physical abuse, emotional, mental abuse, it's like that was torture in itself in another avenue. You know, going without being locked in rooms, not being fed as small children, growing up under his control until we left the house, myself and my brother, um, yeah, it's, he was a real a, control freak. He was, yeah. And I mean, he started to abuse you at quite a young age, didn't he? Yeah, I, was, I would only have been like two or three, I'd say. You know, after, especially since the court case, you know, it's kind of like a healing process. You go through all this stuff. And I think through the process of doing the book, a lot more stuff has come up in my life because it's not, you're not just concentrating on the sentencing that they got with the charges it's everything else that went around us yeah I think a lot of people um, are awakening now to coercive control and the more they hear about it they're kind of going actually that happened me years ago you know and uh, we're becoming a bit more uh, understanding of these terminologies and and not accepting that actually you can't do this I mean rape is uh, rape is a whole different level but I mean things like coercive control emotional bullying uh, bullying things like that I think a lot of us have you know from years ago you would just accept that and think well that's okay it's not okay Definitely not okay. Do you know when I was, um, I speak a lot about the grooming process that my dad done and that's, it goes hand in hand with the course of behaviour. It's the same thing, just different names for it kind of, but like when I was in school I was very outspoken, out in the road I was outspoken and then for people to find out years later the actual control that my father had over me and like he even said when I seen him in the prison that he said himself that there was many situations where I defended him where I shouldn't have as a child. I was still covering up, you know, and when I was going to school with bruises and malnutrition, mm. <laughs> um, never ever would I say anything that was going on at home. But Shanida, I think one of the things that people don't understand is that the grooming process is actually a, a, it's a calculated, manipulative thing to draw you in and to hold you there. You were a child, he was an adult, he was your father, so he shouldn't have been doing this anyway. Um, but just explain to our listeners about the grooming process, because people sometimes miss this. Um, I think because I've worked with so many people that do this line you know, we're, we're going around supporting people and from talking to so many other people. It's like um, my dad became my world. I adored him. Um, he was the only person in the house that I liked. Um, it was such a weird, weird thing. Like, I, I, he was just my be-all and end-all. And even Father's Day, I used to go and carefully collect out the stuff for him and I didn't really care about my mum. And then... Um, when I seen him in the prison with the Restorative Justice, 
like he said that he purposely moved me from one side of the country to the other to be that I would never bond with relations. He made sure me and my mother never had a relationship. And, you know, at the time I was horrified at what he was saying, but it's given me great peace in my life to understand how my family relationship develops. Like he tried to, I, I knew that as a child though, that he always tried to have a thing with me and my brother. He'd constantly tell me that I was only a girl and, you know, girls can't do this. So Anton fishing or <laughs> smacking down a wall in the house, I made sure that I was doing it just as good as they were. But it was just seeing the calculation that he done and the risks that he took knowing he knew 100% as a child I would never ever speak out against him. Yeah, and he did that on purpose because he wanted access to you to abuse you and for you to stay quiet so he could live that evil, vile life. And never once did he threaten me. He never ever said, I'll kill you or I'll do this or I'll do that. And I do feel that before an abuser ever touches the child, the grooming process has gone on way before that. And they might be doomed, you know, like maybe just touching them a little bit inappropriately to see what the reaction would be. And they know before they ever go in for the full. Yeah, and promising you sweets, promising you new clothes, getting these things for you, showering you in gifts. That's all part of the grooming process. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I could get whatever I want. Like we might have had food in the house or electricity, but I had the best of clothes, you know, and Mm. until I wanted, I knew I could get it. Yeah, because he just wanted you on side so he could live that life. Um, you mentioned there that you went to visit your father in prison. Uh, why did you do that? Um, first of all, I wanted to just go on and go see him in the prison to tell him how much I hated him and he destroyed my life. And then they brought up their restorative justice programme to me and I'd never heard of it before. So... Um, I worked with them. I met them in Dublin and... Um, she kind of explained to me that I I would kind of have to say, she asked me what was the purpose that I wanted to go for. And I said that I just wanted, I just wanted to tell him the stuff that's inside me. I said, I don't have any questions for him because I think the, the worst question I could have gone in with was, why did you do this to me? Because I actually don't think they can give you an answer that would satisfy you. So I'm very aware of how clever and manipulative my dad is. So I was like, I'm not going to ask him any questions. And like, I worked with them for a year and a half, you know, which they, they do make sure that you're emotionally stable, mentally stable. They they know by talking to you. So it was a year and a half of meeting them. They'd come up to the side of the country. I'd go up that way. But like literally <laughs> up till the day before, I was like having a nervous breakdown saying, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. But my cousin just said, come up to Dublin and you can decide on the day. And it was literally on the day I just met the women and went to the prison. It's a very brave thing to do, but obviously you needed to do it. It's closure. You know, I've become indifferent to him. In the, in the space of time of saying that I wanted to see him, to tell him how much I hated him, I became indifferent. And that is such an amazing feeling because that is the opposite of love. Hate is a very strong emotion and it can devastate your life having that hatred inside you and I didn't want it there anymore so the indifference to him was just an amazing feeling Mm, mm, uh, like freedom yeah and Shanita um, your mother Rose where was she in all of this Um, well when I was do you know what 
when I was 17, it all came out and uh, my dad admitted everything. He said, yeah, all this had happened. And um, he supposedly went away for a year and of therapy. And then she, she was seeing him the whole time. And, you know, I was only 17 going on 18. And my heart, you know, my heart was broken. My family were ripped apart. They were all blaming me for my dad not being there. Because my mother wasn't saying <laughs> otherwise. You know, she was like, I broke up her family. So then he came back after a year and everything seemed to be grand. And then when I was 26 or 27, he sexually assaulted me again. I told her again. He he rang her and told her what he'd done. And I thought that's when she'd get rid of him. And she didn't. And then he was back in the house. And then I could no longer go to like family occasions or birthdays or Christmas. He was in the house. And then um, after I made the statements in 2010, um, she was still seeing him and she was photographed going into the prison on Father's Day. And um, yeah, she just, she's just been with him since. And he's out and she's living with him now in um, Leeton. And you've no relationship with her at all? No, not since tonight he went in and remands because that's kind of when... It, I knew she was seeing him all the time, but my siblings, they they wouldn't remember back... They were very young. Mm-hmm. So um, she just said to me, oh, I'm sick of this bullshit going on. And I just, you know, hung up on her and that was it. Absolutely shocking stuff. Another thing that always... Um, amazes me and and I mean I'm somebody who would cover a lot of uh, rape and sexual assault cases in court as you know and uh, you know I've interviewed dozens of rape survivors and one thing that is a common thread through a lot of these cases is that the victim and I don't like saying victim but the survivor or the, the person who's being abused is the person who's ostracised. That you know it's extremely meeting other people when I start speaking out then other people contacted me and this thing of the mothers saying with the abusers is so common and it's mm. not spoken about publicly I don't know why and then family members will turn against the person that went to court even if the abuser admits it and, and in your case your father did admit more than 200 charges my mum said oh he's sorry for what he done he's paying you know he's paying for his crime yeah, she's, she said to me, but he admitted it. Yeah. And I said, but Shanita's your daughter and he was raping her. And he, yes, and he's admitted it. Yeah. And he's the love of my life. End of. Yeah. That's just the way she is with us. But it's so common in a lot of the abuse cases that I see going on in the courts that the family are shattered afterwards and that the person who has come forward is seen as the person that destroyed and it's just, it's a total Irish cliche of like just brushing everything under the carpet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just sick of it. And I tell everyone, you know, you've done nothing wrong. Don't let them treat you that way. Stand with your head high and don't let them destroy you. You're very welcome back to The Late Lunch. If you were listening just before the break, we're joined on the line by Shanita Daly, who was raped by her father for nearly two decades. And uh, he served 10 years in prison. And uh, she set up the group, the Facebook group, Survivors Side by Side, where she offers uh, supports to a lot of people who've been through uh, sexual violence, sexual assault. Shanida, um, how is life now? Uh, life's good. <laughs> it took quite a while to get here. I was, like, even when I met you nine years ago, I was so socially awkward. and But I knew... I had a passion in me to help other people not be alone going through the court process or even 
if they hadn't gone through the process of just ha- talking to other people that have been through it. And it's like an amazing little community on Facebook that we all look after each other and help each other out. But um, It's yeah, a huge I group. I mean, you've, you've a couple of thousand members in that group. Yeah, I think there's 1,800 now or 1,900 on it now. And uh, I've I've been on it myself, and I see that there's it's great respect for each other and great support and uh, great advice as well of just the uh, logical steps or what to expect when you're facing uh, the courts because it's very very difficult to get um, a rape or sexual assault case into the courts, particularly historical ones. Yeah, I think the GPP take on less than four percent of historical cases. And you see, um, you know. There's not always the evidence there for the historical historical cases, and it it depends solely on um, your testimony. Yeah, which is which is very difficult for people who have lived with it for years, because sometimes people are not ready to say it until decades later, when so much time has passed and there's no physical evidence of anything. That's a very very hard thing for people to accept, and uh, and for the courts to understand that you're only ready now. Um, I think it's very common that um, it seems to be when you hit your 30s or something that I think you've kind of grown, your 30s, you've grown up. And I think that's a, a lot of people is when it comes back to haunt them a bit, you know, that they've done their growing up and maybe they've started having a family, you know, and have kids and then they're suddenly remembering back. But 30s and 40s are very common for people to come forward with a historic abuse case, as they say. But that, that sounds like so, like I'm, you know, when they say historic, I'm like, oh my God, it's not historic to me. It's like yesterday. Do you know, the words, the terminology even itself is not good. <laughs> I think so as well. And sometimes, you know, when the DPP return insufficient evidence, not yeah. enough to charge somebody, that doesn't mean you're innocent. And I think a lot of people really think, well, I got off with that because they said I was innocent. No, they didn't. Yeah, they said a big difference between us. Yeah, insufficient evidence means we don't have enough to charge it. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. And I think a lot of survivors are learning to understand that that's very helpful to them as well because it is quite common. Well, things have changed now with the DPP as well. Before, they didn't have to give back any answers. And now you can write back and ask them, you know, to give a bit more of why they didn't go ahead. And then, you know, when you're saying to somebody, that does not mean they did not believe you. Mm. It's just that there isn't enough evidence. It can make a person, you know, just feel that little bit better because it is devastating to get that reply back saying no. Yeah. Yeah. But it does help to have the explanation there for yeah. sure. Yeah. And Shanita, who is around you now in terms of your family? Your mother is still with your father and you have siblings and so you're a mother of six now and a grandmother and everything. Yeah, well, my I've the grandkids down the road, I try and go down um, two or three times a week to my daughter, help her with them. And it's just, you know, and I have my own kids going to school and three of them are growing up and moved out of the house. So I think they've helped me through everything massively. Mm. They're the only family I have in this side of the country. The rest are up in Dublin that I go to and then sure with COVID going on, I haven't been anywhere. Mm, mm-hmm. But then, um, yeah, no, the kids and the grandkids definitely help me, you know, when I get up in the morning thinking of them and going to do something and planning the day. Do you miss your mother ever? No. <laughs> no. She was never, um, we never had a relationship like she had with my other siblings, 
she was very, very close to my brother. And I always, you know, I always felt that growing up. Um, why was why did she treat me differently to him? But after seeing my dad in the prison, when he said he made sure that we never had a relationship, it all makes sense to me now. But I wouldn't miss her as a mother. She wasn't. We didn't have that relationship. Well, I mean, he may have intervened and and played those games with you and your mother, but she was still your mother. She should have. Yeah been stronger in that position but unfortunately there are loads of relatives like that who would prefer to just not accept it and just not believe because the horror of accepting that your loved one has done that to a child uh, is something that people just turn a blind eye to and would prefer just not to know and that is devastating to the survivor however I always say to them you're better off without those people in your life and at least you know cut them out and mourn for them like they have died (laughs) That's a really, really good, good piece of advice. It's just, it's I, honest to God, it's the most helpful thing that I ever done in my life. Just, you know, people that I cared so much about. And because I felt I was ripped away from all of them as a young child, you know, the relations, and mm. I didn't have that relationship with them, that it, it hurt me then after the court case, not hearing from anyone. And I just mourned for them like they had died. And uh, it made my life so much better. <laughs> I think that's that's a really sound advice, Shanita. You have a book coming out next year? I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be talking about a lot more of what happened in your case, things that didn't even come out in the courtroom. Oh, yeah, it's 100% um, stuff I haven't spoken about in public. Um, it's, very, it's very honest, it's very raw, but it's stuff that I had to speak about, and yeah, it'll all be in the book. Because it's it's forever healing, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. It's a process. You can't just say, I'm going to be better in 10 years. Mm. It doesn't work that way. But the road does get way easier as you go along it. Well, as you said, I met you nine years ago and I see a huge change in you from every stage, from, you know, getting the, 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 the guilty verdict. And remember, your father pleaded guilty and so he didn't really do a trial. He just went straight to jail because he didn't want that. And he knew that as a prison officer. But also, you know, um, the highs and the lows of your life the acceptance of your mother and letting her go, letting all of these relatives go as if they died, which was hugely helpful and beneficial to you. You look absolutely amazing. You're a tower of strength, but you're also a wonderful support to all of the survivors out there who reach out to you. And I know many of them, Shanita. So you've done incredible work. Thank you. (laughs) Well, look, I'll let you go. I'm uh, delighted to have you on The Late Lunch here with us. And uh, you might come back in the new year and tell us about your book. I will. Good woman. Listen, you mind yourself and thanks very much for joining us on The Late Lunch. That's the brilliant Shanida Daly there. Uh, life after rape and all of the things that she's went through. She's a tower of strength. She's a wonderful person and an absolute brilliant advocate for people in her situation. We'll head to news and sport next. You're very welcome back to The Late Lunch here on LMFM. I'm Alison O'Reilly and uh, we're here until half past three. So do get in touch. A couple of texts coming in on our text and WhatsApp. 86 658 is the number if you want to get in touch with us. Alison, it was dreadful what happened to that lady. It wasn't right uh, the way her father raped her. That lady is an amazing person to come out and speak and I'll get her book when it comes out. That's from Deirdre and Kells. Uh, we were speaking to Shanida Daly just before the news and sport about uh, life after rape and she's got some story. She's an incredible person uh, still advocating and still supporting others in the same situation. People saying cons- co- coercive control on a child is also, is uh, 
parental alienation as well. Keep the text coming in and you can email us, of course, on uh, info at lmfm.ie. Now, still to come, Emily Hurricane of, uh, uh, is going to speak to us about the Guinness family and her new book. And one school has left it to their students to decide how they want to spend their day in class, whether it's climbing trees or reading the tablet and alpacas in tuxedos, a new trend. But first, have you heard about a sugar-free diet? Well, Dundalk nutritionist and chef Rachel Graham is on the line to tell us all about it. Rachel, how are you? Hi, Alison. Great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Now, this is a growing trend as well, isn't it? The sugar-free diet. People are starting to learn that sugar is really not that good for you. I think people are, what they're realising is that so much of our supermarket food contains added sugar. So even if they are, you know, avoiding obvious forms of sugar, uh, they're still perhaps uh, shopping in the supermarket and buying kind of ready-made meals and um, other kind of uh, essentially processed foods that just contain so much added sugar. And it's often lurking in places where you least expect and in places like savory foods. So you don't really expect to um, see sugar listed on the ingredients of you know savory foods. And that's what's so surprising. So, yes, thank Thankfully, uh, you know, people are actually realizing this and um, reducing their sugar by just not consuming the processed foods and added sugar. And I think people are trying to cook their own food from scratch. They're making a bigger effort to do that now, certainly since the pandemic. Yes, and that, exactly. So as somebody said to me, you're uh, hopefully going to come out of the pandemic a, a fabulous chef. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got a bit better. I did get a bit better. I'm just reading a packet of dry roasted peanuts I have here now. They're my little Mm. snack, a little handful. I don't see sugar in that, which is good. But to see there's powders and things as well. There's lots of different colours and things as well in them. But I've been advised that they're all right. A little handful of them is okay. Well, no, I would disagree with that. Okay, tell me more. Well, when you say that there's no sugar listed on the ingredients, this is the thing that manufacturers don't actually list the sugar as sugar. It's always listed as you know something that generally ends in, in O's, as in fructose, sucrose, dextrose, lactose, maltose. And these are all names that don't sound anything like sugar. So, you know, to the, um, you know, to, to the average person, they think, oh, yeah, that's just another ingredient. But in fact, often... Um, sugars are also listed under natural ingredients as well. Okay. And that obviously sounds like a, 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 you know, kind of fairly innocent um, thing on an ingredients list. But natural ingredients is such a grey area and manufacturers are not obliged to um, disclose what is in those natural ingredients. So that's another big grey area. OK, so I might avoid um, those peanuts. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if you're going to have peanuts, you're better off having just regular nuts. Um, so you can buy them in pouches in the supermarket like Lidl and Aldi mm. uh, that are unsalted because also, you know, you don't want to be consuming too much sodium either. Mm -hmm. Um, because that can then unfortunately elevate blood pressure and uh, it's just, you know, puts your liver under excess stress that you don't need either. So I know it's a bit of a minefield, but you're you're just better off going with the um, with with the unroasted, the unsalted nuts. They're just so much better for you. Okay, that's them gone then. All right then. (laughs) Okay. But uh, one thing I have done, Rachel, is I've consciously stopped taking sugar. Um, Now, I am trying to cook all of my own meals 
Uh, mm. For the last two months, I certainly haven't gone out of my way to eat sugar. I've had no sweets, no bars of chocolate, and I would have about 10 bars a day. Um, and I really would now. Um, and mm. uh, I've stopped... Uh, I've become more conscious so I've stopped everything from the oat lattes I've cut out dairy I've cut out sugar and what else have I cut out I have reduced my carbs and uh, I've already lost a half a stone however apart from that I feel good I feel more energetic yeah your mental clarity I'd say has probably improved as well yes it it has yeah although Louise mightn't say it has but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just feel probably a bit sharper and your memory and concentration maybe you've noticed I mean it's 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 one of those things it's not an overnight sensation it does take time you know because you're literally weaning your body off these stimulants well certainly now I'll, ha- I'll just just to say on that point Rachel when I stopped I stopped um, oat lattes first for a week and I swear it was just horrendous I read the news <laughs> And I'm a broadcaster and I was slurring my speech. I was all over the place and I had the worst headache that went on for about 10 days um, and that's gone. So I don't drink coffee anymore. And then the second week I cut out all sugar, sweets, crisps, all that gone. And then the third week I went for a low carb um, (laughs) diet. So I... Uh, that's what a couple of months now and I'm feeling good but certainly um, the first week was horrendous yeah it is it's um, you see because you know again you don't realise just how much sugar you're consuming Mm. because you think okay I'm not eating cakes or biscuits or chocolate or maybe no fizzy drinks and we all know that there's a lot of sugar in all of those items but it's the hidden sugar on top of that you know in Mm -hmm. places that you're least expecting it as I was saying in like yogurts and even in things like um, the cereal bars that are marketed to you as a healthier option and they're actually not it's just confectionery with added protein you know yeah and um so all of these things really really add up and you know a lot of us are consuming sometimes three times or even four times the amount of sugar that that the world health organization would recommend that we consume on a daily basis which is on average about five or maximum six six teaspoons and that's the upper end of the range so you know they're not recommending that you have that every day but just you know that would be like the cutoff point whereas you know there's at least six teaspoons in a bottle of leucoside you know and yeah. you see kids walking around with these and then you know you think about all of the other forms of sugar that they're consuming you know be it in you know those subway rolls in you know fast food processed foods in and then they're having chocolate bars and everything else it's the kids that i worry about really more i think uh, than anything because uh, you know just the the decay to your your teeth then obviously the weight gain mm-hmm. the um, obesity problem that we have in this country it's uh it, yeah, it's it's just terrible so um and i also feel really sorry sorry i'm in a bit of a rant here now allison but no, go for the it. sugar is just you know i think it's public enemy number one and i feel particularly sorry for parents of really young kids because you know they will often you know just plonk their their uh, favorite cartoon character front and center on a box of cereal you know and it's very yes. hard for a mum to walk down the aisle no it's not for me her. i say you're not getting it and that's it <laughs> but you do i know when you're exhausted and you've a naggy child you would give them anything yes. for the peace exactly. 
I know, exactly, because it is relentless, you know, being the parent of, of young children, it's all day, nonstop, you know, just minding them. And uh, I just think it's very, very hard. So, you know, I'm a big advocate of just, you know, removing the advertising from all of those box cereals and all of those types of foods, mm-hmm. also removing those it used to be waist height. Now it's human height, like over six foot tall. I, I walked past them only yesterday in the major supermarkets of Quality Street and all of these things that are just piled high, um, you know, ridiculously low prices, like three euros for over a kilo of chocolate sweets. Mm. You know, so I just it's it's terrible. It's really terrible. And people are buying these thinking, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's Halloween. We'll just give them to the kids. But yeah, it's overload on sugar and the damage that it's doing to our bodies it's uh, it's an anti-nutrient not well, what know, is it doing what is it doing so basically it has zero nutritional value zero and in fact not only does it have zero nutritional value it actually costs us nutrients because it actually creates inflammation in the body so uh, that drives your blood glucose it drives your so that is a driver obviously of type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes it um will also obviously cause weight gain it causes tooth decay um it is it raises uh, cortisol levels um which is your stress hormone and you know it's it's a really really powerful stimulant and and, you know, manufacturers know this and they know of its addictive properties and obviously one of the reasons that they use it and and also disguise it on labels, on food labels, um, so that, you know, it's not that obvious to the average consumer. Um, and it's just really, really harmful. You know, they it, 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 it can also cause fatty liver disease as well. So um, I just think avoiding hidden sugar is difficult, I know. But really, if you are making your food from scratch um, and just avoiding the processed foods and the ready-made foods in the supermarkets as much as possible, I get it. We're all really, really busy. Mm. But uh, it will really help you to avoid becoming a slave to it. I mean, you just described there your extreme headaches that you had in that first week of kind of coming off caffeine, but there was also sugar involved in that because there's sugar in in milk. And even in um, the the non-dairy alternatives like oat milk, you know, it also contains sugars in those, more sugars than you probably realize because again, it's marketed as a really healthy option, but you just have to be brand aware when it comes to the non-dairy alternatives as well. That's a whole other subject Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> it is a bit of a minefield, it I is. know. And, and they don't make it easy for you to understand. So, um, well, I'll tell you why I've done all of these things because Maria's texting us in here on 086 658. We're speaking to um, Dundalk nutritionist and chef Rachel Graham just about the sugar free diet and the harm that sugar can cause your body. So, um, we had Lorraine Keane on the show yesterday and she was talking about uh, the menopause and all the, mm-hmm. the signs that she had and she wished she had sought help sooner and she. She's premenopausal, you know, and she she said she was very embarrassed and felt old and all of these things when she was asked to front this campaign. However, now she sees the benefits of it and she's delighted she did it and she's reaching out mm. to loads of women. But certainly, uh, as I've never I never spoke about this publicly, and I'm actually cringing now saying it. However, since I was about I don't know seventeen. I have had the worst uh, menstrual cycles that uh, of all of my friends. Anybody who knows me would know that every mm. month has been 
just horrific. Um, I mean, I collapsed in college. I would vomit. I would have to go to bed. I would sometimes take two days to recover. Now, I never missed work. Um, and uh, what I discovered then was medication. I was taking uh, f- 1500 milligrams of Ponston um, mm. just oh. to get over the first day. Even my pharmacist <laughs> was saying, uh, you're not supposed to be doing that. Uh, you could die. So, but I didn't, at that point, I was like, I just don't care anymore. T- from bloating to swelling to to perspiring to irritability I've had it for 20 years I've been to absolutely everybody there's nothing I haven't done I'm not a person who lies under it I'm like have to see this person have to no could never get to the end of it and uh, I I had my my period a couple of weeks ago and I never even knew I had it my body wow. didn't change at all since the sugar, the caffeine, the, the low carb. I was like, oh, OK, no pain, no headache, no swelling, no nothing. So clearly I've done something with my diet to make things better. And I wish I knew this 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And it's that's the that's the ironic thing is that often, you know, your nutrition, your diet is the last place you look when in fact it should be the first place you look yeah. because... You know, when you think about, you know, food is our fuel and your body is a, an incredible machine. So I often liken our bodies to like the most amazing sports car. So think of like a bright, shiny red Ferrari. Why would you put tractor diesel into that? <laughs> I suffered in silence and didn't tell anybody. And now I'm like, oh, my God, everybody needs to know this. And again, it takes yeah. Maria's asking me, holy God, what do you eat? I eat everything from scratch. I'm yeah. I'm vegetarian now as well. That's the other thing. But I would have like porridge. I'd have a little bit of fruit. I have yeah. falafels. I have salad. And then I have a vegan meal every evening and loads of water. And uh, you don't actually need to eat a whole lot, Rachel. Yeah, so you will find, yeah, so if you're eating kind of little and often mm. and, you know, keeping yourself fueled, um, you know, blood sugar, your that your blood sugars are balanced, that's really, really important. Um, you know, you will find that your appetite will also reduce because mm. remember, sugar is driving cravings, yes. you know, so, yeah. and I'm not just talking about the obvious forms of sugar again, like, I mean, carb- sugar is basically a carbohydrate, you know, and carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates will drive cravings. So you just find yourself eating a lot more. Whereas when you cut out those refined carbohydrates and also the obvious forms of sugar and the hidden forms of sugar, yes, your appetite will reduce. Yes, your blood sugars will become balanced. And also what you have done is really gone on an anti-inflammatory diet. So you've removed all of those stimulants. So sugar, the caffeine in particular, also dairy. So these are all, you know, known drivers of inflammation. And, um, you know, just by removing those, you're actually, your body is now kind of probably making a, a big sigh of relief going off. Good girl, oh, Alison. You know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Doing a happy dance. So, well, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on The Late Lunch. Uh, it's a very informative piece about the sugar-free diet. I certainly am testament to how it can uh, help your mm. body. And yeah. uh, people can get you, you're a Dundalk nutritionist and you're a chef. You're online, Rachel, so people can contact you there if they have any questions. Yeah. It's rachelgraham.ie is my website. And uh, it's funny that you said there about Lorraine Keane and the menopause. We're actually hosting a menopause event this weekend in Dundalk. It's a wellness event purely for women and all about the menopause. And I will be talking about nutrition specifically for menopause. Oh, wonderful. Um, as well as lots of other things. So if they want to, if they're interested in tickets, just go on to rachelgraham.ie or Great. onto my Instagram. Brilliant well. stuff. Great. That's Rachel Graham Thank there. You. Thank you so much for joining us on The Late Lunch. We'll take a break and we'll be back after this. 
The Counting Crows, Big Yellow Taxi. Did you like that song, Louise Walsh? I met the Counting Crows. Did you? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the lead singer off the top of my head, but he kind of had dreadlocks and great voice. Uh, I do. I prefer the original, though. The yes. original song. The original. Did a good Joe version of it though. Tony Mitchell, was it? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think it is. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the Counting Crows there. I haven't heard from them in a long time, have you? No, that song must be at least, what, 10 years old? Probably all doing their own albums. and 10? No, it's more than that. Is it? 20. Oh, I would no, think so. Really, really I old. think my son was a baby when that came out. There you go. 20. Imagine if a 20 year old in a few weeks. Anyway. Um, Does he eat as little <laughs> as you do? Do you know he's mad into the gym? Young fellas that age now are all into themselves. They're all into the gym. They're all into looking good. They're not into cigarettes and booze. It's the gym every day, bulking up, that kind of look. They all fancy themselves. Oh, they love themselves. You know what's coming back? And I heard this uh, the other day in boys, especially the trend. Perms. Perms? Yeah, perms. Teenage boys are getting perms. It's the trend in boys, not girls. I was trying to think, oh, my gosh, when I was growing up, I think I got a perm. But I was. I got a perm. Yeah, it's a trend now. It's a trend among young boys. boys. Okay, well, if there's any young fellas out there who are getting the perm, (laughs) we want to hear from you. We definitely do. 0861-800-658. I got a perm and I was so mad that I got it done. Um, because I was an Irish dancer and it was going to help my mother with the ringlets oh and all yeah. that. God, um, <laughs> and my hair is dead straight. That uh, I never allowed a photograph of me taken with my hair permed. I did not like it. Hated it. And so there's no pictures, no evidence. Mm-hmm. Just my word. Anyway, <laughs> what's that? Stick a hat on. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. Little curls. It didn't suit, it didn't suit me. I no. have a hat for all occasions in my car. <laughs> no, do you? Yeah. No, hats make my head very sweaty. I see. I'm. I. You're total different to me. Yeah, you're all chunky jumpers and hats. I'm like t-shirt, big jumper, and you're sitting there with like sleeveless, lovely top, <laughs> summery top. It's too warm. Yeah, it's uh, too warm. <laughs> or maybe it's just half flushes, Louise. Did you ever think of that? Maybe I'm the opposite of, of that. <laughs> anyway, still to come on the late lunch, Emily Hurricane is on the way with her new book, The Guinness Girls. Um, we're going to be talking to one school who's going to let the students just to decide how to run the day themselves. And alpacas in tuxedos. It's a new trend at weddings. So that's all coming up after the break. You're very welcome back to The Late Lunch on LMFM with me, Alison O'Reilly. Uh, text in here from Deirdre in Kells on 0861800658. Alison, they should have diet sugar. I drink Diet Coke and there's no added sugar in it. Deirdre, that is where you're wrong. That is where you're wrong, unfortunately. Rachel Graham, the chef and nutritionist, was on earlier talking about the sugar-free diet and how it's public enemy number one sugar. We shouldn't, we need to be reading things better and and basically cooking from scratch. But there is hidden sugar in almost everything, Deirdre. I'm sorry to burst your bubble now. I'm sure it tastes lovely, but there is a bit of sugar in there somewhere. Um, Still to come on the show, we'll be speaking about one school who's letting the students just uh, dictate the day themselves and to do whatever it is they fancy doing in school. And uh, we'll also be hearing about alpacas in tuxedos. But first, I'm sure many of you would have heard about the privileged Guinness sisters, Aileen, Maureen and Una. And they, at the time, were the darlings of society in Dublin and London. But when they went on to be wives and mothers, they did struggle with the realities of married life. And to tell us more about her new book, Emily Hurricane, is on the line and you're the author of The Guinness Girls A Hint of Scandal what a title Emily you're welcome how are you? I'm great and thank you so much for having me on the show No problem at all you have a fascination with the Guinness sisters I am very interested in them yes so this book The Guinness Girls A Hint of Scandal 
is actually a sequel to a book that I produced last year, which was called The Glorious Guinness Girls. They're both novels about the lives of the three Guinness sisters who were the daughters of Ernest Guinness. Guinness, and they were born at the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, the eldest, Eileen, was born in 1904. And their lives spanned pretty much the entire century. Eileen, the eldest, died in 1999. So between them, they lived from the beginning of the 1900s right through to the end. They were kind of spectators to all of these incredible historical times, like the Irish War of Independence and then the 1920s both of which are covered in my first novel, The Glorious Guinness Girls, and then the 1930s, which is when this second novel, The Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal, is set. So at the point that I begin this second novel, they are exactly, as you say, they're just married, the three of them, and they are entering now this world of wifedom and motherhood, and they are leaving behind the kind of, you know, incredibly privileged, quite spoiled childhoods that they have had and they're moving into the real world uh, of being grown-ups. And it is, the novel is very much about how that went for them. And also then it's juxtaposed with the kind of political and social um, ca- or canvas of the time. Because the 1930s in Britain was a time, it was a decade of enormous upheaval. Uh, there was the rise of communism. There was the rise of fascism. There was great political and social unrest. So the novel um, is very much a look at the turbulence within the lives of the Guinness sisters and also the turbulence within the decade in the UK itself. So they would have been incredibly privileged women. I mean, hugely, hugely well-known, a lot of money there. They all had castles, big homes, anything they wanted. So why, why did the settled life then of marriage and motherhood, I suppose, having, I suppose, coming from, you know, the society where you could uh, enjoy the glamorous lifestyle, then to becoming the mother, the reality of being a mother for anyone is a shock. Absolutely. I mean, it is. And you're so right. You know, I have children. In fact, my eldest turns 18 today. So I am very much thinking about what it was like when I had him. And it was a shock. I think that it is always a shock. Mm. I think that what you have in your head is so different to the reality. And I think that the reality is generally far more demanding than unchallenging than what you have in your head is. And I also think that if you are coming to these things, from the position that the Guinness girls were in, which was exactly, as you say, this immensely privileged and wealthy upbringing. And right through the 1920s, um, as I detail in The Glorious Guinness Girls, they are having this amazing time of endless parties and it's the roaring 20s and it's the bright young people. And they're very much part of that scene. It's all about parties and lunches Mm. and treasure hunts. And then they go into what is a far more real part of their lives as adults. And so the Guinness girls, Eileen, Maureen and Una Guinness, between them, they married eight times. So in the Guinness girls, A Hint of Scandal, they are all married for the first time. Two of those three marriages did not survive the decade. Una was divorced by 1935 and Eileen was divorced by 1939. And they were, well, actually divorced in 1940, but well separated by then. And Maureen, the middle sister, stayed married 
through the 1930s, her husband, in fact, died in the Second World War. But that was a very tempestuous relationship. There was a lot of passion in Maureen's marriage to Basil Blackwood, who was mm. the Marquess of Dufferin and Aver. But there was a lot of arguments as well. There's a famous story, and I include this actually as a detail within the Guinness Girl, mm. the Hinge of Scandal. There is a point at which they had a row so bad that he took a pair of scissors and he cut off all of her clothes. He simply snipped them to pieces in a fit of absolute rage. So they had that kind of relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. tempestuous but you know also kind of troubled um, and so this is I really wanted to show within the novel that no matter what kind of an upbringing you have we can still make choices in marriage that don't necessarily work out for us and then motherhood for them for the three Guinness sisters was a, a whole other series of challenges between Una Guinness who was the youngest of the three girls who was an absolutely devoted mother she adored children. She wanted to spend all her time with them. People thought she was mad because she was so involved in wanting to bring up her children, whereas her sisters would have been much more typical of the 1930s in that they didn't want to bring up their children. They wanted a <laughs> nanny in the nursery to bring up their children. And they wanted to see those children, you know, between the hours, maybe four and five, in the drawing room, nicely dressed. Yeah. Don't bother me with that. Removed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were absolutely stunning looking women and the style would knock you, as they say. I mean, they're absolutely gorgeous women. They would have had their pick of men. They probably would have had their pick of men, yes. They were also incredibly rich. So they had everything going for them in this market, this awful marriage market, which really was the only acceptable kind of arena for them to compete in and to appear in. I mean, as very privileged, very well-born girls of that era, their job would absolutely have been to go out and find good husbands. Mm. And so, you know, the three of them married very young. So Una Guinness was the youngest. She was 19 when she got married to Philip Kindersley. And then, as I say, within six years, that marriage was finished. And Mm. she then married again. Almost immediately, she married Dominic, who was Lord Arnmore and Brown. Um, and she, she had two children by her first husband. She had another three children with her second husband. He had five children previous to that relationship. She was very much surrounded by children. Wow. Um, and then Eileen Guinness married. She was the eldest. She married Brinsley, Sheridan, Plunkett, which was also a good marriage, but not a particularly fabulous one. And Maureen Guinness probably then made the most kind of um, competitively fine and grand marriage. The Marquess of Dufferin and Ava was her husband, Basil Blackwood. Um, and so, yes, I mean, they were, you know, that was, but they were, as I say, they were very young to be married. Mm-hmm, they were, yeah. Two, yeah. Two of those three marriages didn't survive the decade. You know, it's hard to make necessarily the right choices when you are 19 or 20 years old. I say it was very, very difficult for them. And to, and to, as as together, the three of them, did they get on? They did get on. I don't think they were particularly close. Mm. Um, I have, so in the novel, in The Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal, I have them very much kind of playing in and around each other's lives a lot, as sisters obviously would do. But in fact, I don't have any evidence to suggest that they were very close. So I have also used an invented character within the novel, so a 
character called Kathleen, who is close to all three of them. And in a sense, she allows me to fulfill that kind of imaginative role of confidences that they may not have shared with each other. They share with her in this novel. Um, and therefore, I can show to an extent what's going on in their lives and in their heads without needing to overstate mm. the amount that they were close with each other. They were also very close. I mean, they were, you know, the Mitford sisters, so that's kind of Nancy Mitford, Diana Mitford, uh, would also have been close with them. And I have included the Mitford sisters as characters within the Guinness Girls A Hint of Scandal as well. And um, Diana was married to their cousin, Brian. And then later she left Brian and she married Oswald Mosley, who was the founder of the British Union of Fascists. So there's lots of kind of political um, intrigue coming in as well. There's lots of fascism. And then on the other side, there's socialism that that also enters the story. And Una Guinness lived in the house in Rutland, in Rutland Gate, where she lived in London. She actually lived very close. The Mitford sisters were just over the way from her. So I had this. In the novel, I have this idea that, you know, she's kind of watching the Mitford tumbling in and out of the house at number 26, Rutland Gate, and being able to see all of the comings and goings of that very kind of fascinating family. Oh, fascinating, an absolutely fascinating read. But we've run out of time, Emily, and uh, but the Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal is out now. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. That is the the author of The Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal, Emily Hurricane. Uh, Her second book on the uh, fascinating read, Three Beautiful Women. uh, But it's never all as it seems. You think the the money and the fame and all that's going to make you happy. Didn't make them happy. We'll take a break and we'll be back after this. Welcome back to The Late Lunch on LMFM. I'm Alison O'Reilly. I'm here until half past three. Feel free to get in touch. The numbers again, 086-1800-658. You can text us or WhatsApp us here or email us at info at lmfm.ie. Now, have you ever heard of self-directed learning at school? Well, the ethos of the Sudbury School in Sligo is that the students decide themselves what to do with their time during the day. I mean, it sounds like a heavenly school to go to. I wish there were schools like that when I was growing up. And Gail Nagel is on the line to tell us more. Gail, you're very welcome along to The Late Lunch. How are you? I'm good, Alison. Thank you. Now, this is a fascinating ethos. Tell us more about it and how the idea came about. Yes, well, actually, the the, the concept is quite old now at this stage. Um, One of the first schools in the world was set up by a man called A.S. Neal in the UK in the early 1900s. But... um, Basically, the ethos is self-directed learning and the fundamental principle is um, that underpins it all is that when you want to learn something, you'll learn it in a flash and you'll learn it without any any stress or anxiety. And so we've created an environment here where the children can, you know, follow whatever learning pursuits that they want to. It's an environment that's safe for them and that has lots of opportunities available for learning for different types of uh, interests, whether it be music or science or mathematics, whatever it is. And um, they have autonomy and they have uh, the choice to, to follow whatever pursuits they want to during the day and throughout the school year. So you have students from five to 18? That's right, yeah. Our oldest student at the moment actually is 16, but we take students all the way from primary to secondary age, yeah. And how many students do you have in the school at the moment? 
We have 60 now. So the, there's been a huge amount of growth in the last couple of years. We started with 15 in 2018. Our second year, we had 30, then 45. And we started with 60 this year. And we have a good number uh, on a waiting list too to come in. So um, it's been it's proved to be very popular. Uh, we've got a lot of local students and we also have a lot of students from around the country and actually around the world. So there's families who are explicitly looking for this kind of education system for their children. They feel that it's just, I suppose, it's going to provide uh, what they need and it's going to give them the skills they need going into the future, versatility, adaptability and resilience. And um, they, they're, they're explicitly coming, coming here uh, to educate their children in this way. So the idea is to give children their own voice, their own choice and their own opportunities and then to follow what they like doing most. That's absolutely right. And to trust them. Wow. To trust them. Have I lost you, Gail? I might have lost Gail there. I mean, we'll try and get her back. But um, that's Gail Nagel there, who's talking about self-directed learning after COVID-19. The Sudbury School in Sligo has this initiative where children can just basically go in and do their own thing. Um, And I suppose, you know, we had the children's referendum there and uh, we're supposed to be putting children at the heart of every decision being made in this country. Uh, The voice of the child, I'm sure you've all heard it. We hear it all the time. And I certainly don't see it. I don't think children are at the heart of any decision making in this country. And I always believe that Ireland has never put children first. If that was the case, we wouldn't have nearly two to three thousand children in the homeless sector at the moment. We wouldn't have children falling through the cracks of the foster care system, which I personally believe, in my own opinion, is one of uh, a very, very broken system. And. Um, I'm a former foster parent and I found uh, the running of the system uh, dreadful, in my own personal opinion that was. Um, And uh, I do understand that children have to go into care, but I do think that more can be done to support families to uh, look after their children as long as as they're being looked after and they're not being neglected. So the idea that you would um, bring your child to a school where they can just decide themselves what they're going to do uh, to make their own choices, to follow their own opportunities, to learn what it is that they want to do and to find their own interests, I think is absolutely fascinating. Because I suppose when you cast yourself back to going to school, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but I struggled. I struggled so much in school because uh, I didn't want to be there. Um, And, you know, I've no problem with hard work and I had to work very hard in school. Um, because I was so uh, stuck in daydream land most of the time, which I've now learned uh, shouldn't have happened and that teachers should have been engaging with me more and pulling me out of daydream land because children need real things so they can touch, touch and feel, I'm told now. And I see the way my children are taught in school and the way children are taught generally in school uh, these days. And it's a whole different ball game now. There's a lot more one-to-one, a lot more engagement. I know schools aren't brilliant and I know that there's loads of problems in schools, but certainly from when I was in school and my kids being in school now, I can see the huge difference and how there's so much more engagement with the child and giving the child their voice. So to allow them to come in and uh, self-direct their own learning 
is uh, absolutely amazing. Um, I've loads of questions for Gail and I'm just thinking, you know, um, at the end of the day, like it really is about the child and how do they follow their own interests? How do they continue doing what they want to do uh, if they um, if, if they're not given that chance, if they're not given their own voice and if they don't know uh, what exactly they want to do and they're not being guided? So look, we'll take a song and we'll be back after this. Here's the Lumineers. I think we're alone now. I'm sorry now, you've all just missed Louise doing the moves, the Tiffany moves. She came in here and did those moves. I, I completely saw forgot she did that. I think we're I alone the now. The hand. And then I was like, no, but she did something with her legs. What, just what was something it? kicked in. I know, it just, she just took off. Subconscious. You were a Tiffany fan. Uh, that came to you know, just so naturally. I think that was a more Debbie Gibson. Were you? Yeah, at the time it was Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, wasn't it? Tiffany, like, that was a massive song, wasn't it? Mm. She was only about 16, wasn't she? Yeah, she was very young, wasn't she? Did you... <laughs> could get really dark <laughs> now. This is the crime journalist and me coming out. Did you see Cape Fear and Robert De Niro? I think we're alone now. <laughs> Before he tries to kill them all on the boat. <laughs> I can't watch them films. <laughs> it was... <laughs> he certainly took the Tiffany out of it. He didn't do the dance, no. <laughs> I didn't, uh, no. It was very scary, as Robert De Niro like can dance. be... <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry now I didn't video you and do a little TikTok. Yeah, I'm not. Hold it against you for years. No, you have great moves, Louise. She looked great. Anyway, uh, you're listening to The Late Lunch here on LMFM. And still to come on the show, we'll be talking about alpacas in tuxedos. People are uh, raving about this and hiring them out for weddings and everything. So uh, Ellie Moon and will be on the line later to talk to us about that. But first, um, as you may have heard on the station over the next couple of weeks, we're highlighting the invaluable work carried out by the Jack and Jill Foundation throughout the shows. And the Jack and Jill Children's Foundation provides the funds in home nursing care and respite support for children up to the age of six, enabling parents to care for their very sick child at home. Currently, there are 396 children and families being cared for across Ireland, including 13 in the Louth and Meath area. And throughout the month of October, they are carrying out a major fundraising campaign called Up the Hill for Jack and Jill. And you can register to participate by logging on to jackandjill.ie. That's jackandjill.ie. And on Friday's late lunch, we will talk to Peter Sage, who is receiving a huge respite helpline from Jack and Jill. Peter and Cecilia from Dundalk here in County Loud have a five-year-old daughter, Sarah, who has an extremely rare brain abnormality and needs 24-hour care. Their Jack and Jill nurse, Sharon, allows the couple to spend more time with their older son as well as vital time to themselves. So listen at 3.15 on Friday here on The Late Lunch for that. And I I personally can vouch for the Jack and Jill Foundation. Uh, I worked with the amazing paediatric liaison nurse Nurse uh, Caroline Thomas, when I had a very sick foster child, they were absolutely fantastic. I can't say enough good things about the Jack and Jill Foundation. So stay tuned on Friday for that. Uh, it's a very worthwhile cause, and you can read it more on the Jack and Jill website, jackandjill.ie. We'll take a break and we'll be back after this. You're very welcome back to The Late Lunch on LMFM and uh, Ellie Moonen is on the line to tell us about alpacas being back on the wedding guest list as couples return to planning their big day in style. Ellie, how are you? I'm good, Alison, thanks. I never knew there was a Boyne Valley alpaca farm. Yeah, well, we're we're around four years, but we've only really started opening up to visitors 
um, really since spring. We started in January, but um, because of COVID and restrictions, we weren't able to um, open up, obviously. So it was in the spring, in April, when restrictions eased that we started inviting um, visitors to the farm. It's all appointment only. There's, it's not an open farm, mm-hmm. um, so it's only um, appointments. And how many do you have? We have 26. Oh, wow. And growing. <laughs> and growing. But there's a big yeah, we're demand. We're on a Korea at the moment. Um, she's, she's late, so she should be. A Korea is a baby alpaca. So um, we're waiting on one at the moment. I thought we'd have her today, or him, her, he, him or her. Um, but no, so hopefully tomorrow. Oh, the cuteness. That is yeah. gorgeous. And what got you into alpaca? Um, we, at the time, we didn't have a lot of land around us. Um, and we uh, were looking for animals um, to put on the, the bit of land that we had. And um, alpaca suited um, what we were looking for. They're easy to manage and... They don't eat a lot of grass and they don't dig up the grass. They don't have hooves um, and that's it. it just fitted the bill at the time. And we weren't expecting to have 26 in four years, but we it just grew and we had got more land um, over time. And you took a shine to these now. They're absolutely they're gorgeous. Very, yeah, they're very addictive. Uh, what, like, are they just very soft and easy to be around? What's What's the draw? Yeah, they're just very, they're um, a very inquisitive animal. Um, they are gentle. Um, they're just fun to look at. Um, you sort of, they're great time wasters. So you just go down to check on them and I could be there for 45 minutes just staring at them. Oh, listen, I'm like that with my dogs, Ellie. I mean, I get nothing done. Yeah. And um, they're just, um, they, they're a gentle animal that you, you're very drawn to them and they have a little hum, which is very relaxing. Um, yeah, so that's that's what happens to us anyway. Um, I'm looking at the little baby ones here. I'm looking at the baby ones here. They're gorgeous. Oh my god, yeah. they're so cuddly, and and they come in and have an old nosy, do they? Yeah, yeah, they're very curious and very inquisitive. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. So you've been contacted now uh, to bring them to weddings. You're dressing them up in tuxedos. Yeah, I just put the tuxedos on them the other day going to a wedding. Um, I just thought it looked cute. Um, They can wear the little collars or they can wear um, a collar of flowers to match the the wedding flowers. Uh, But it would have to be arranged in advance with the florist. Um, Or they can wear bows or they can just come naturally. Um, But um, they're... They're lovely for photographs. It's a sort of a unique um, thing to have in your photograph is uh, these cute alpacas. Um, and the couple seem to seem to like it. That's a, a lovely idea. Now, of course, me being an animal lover and you being an animal lover, they're not harmed when this is happening. They're not frightened, I mean, or anything like that. Do you know the way sometimes animals can get quite scared? They're going into the unknown and they get a little yeah. bit frightened. Uh, I'd have uh, a major concern about anything like that because I know my dogs are terrified of everything. So I'm real protective in that sense. But just to yeah. reassure people. Yeah, no, that's um, why we haven't done it in the past. Uh, we have been asked a lot of times over the last few years, would we attend wed- weddings? But our animals at the time weren't uh, seeing a lot of visitors. 
Um, so we we decided against it at the time. Um, but now, over the summer, our animals have been are seeing visitors every a few times a week, and they're well used to um, interacting with people. Um, and we only use we although we have twenty six, we only use um, our trekking boys is what we call them. So the the boys that we use for walking. Um, and we only bring them with us, and we only bring the ones that um, would enjoy it, and yes. are very curious and would like um, that that kind of environment, people around them, um, and getting attention. The little and day out for them. In particular, we have is Monty, and he's really um, sort of affectionate and really inquisitive. Um, sort of noses up to people to have <laughs> to give a little kiss and that type of thing. Um, so no, they're they're very cute. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I'd say it's it's the the confident ones you bring and the ones that are used to it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, tell me about the Christmas trees and alpacas. Yeah, so last Christmas, um, we've been doing it for the last few years. But last Christmas, I happened to put up a post um, looking to ask just locals really if they had any Christmas trees that weren't sprayed or anything that we would take them. That the alpacas love them. Um, and my post happened to be public, <laughs> and it got shared um, around. Um, I don't know. I don't know how over a hundred <laughs> times, and then all those shares as well. So it got inundated with calls and Christmas trees, and we just couldn't take them all. But we were very grateful for all the offers, but um, we couldn't take them all. But alpacas love uh, the pines on the Christmas trees, okay. um, and they it, they're full of vitamin. Um, C and A and some some varieties have E and um, they're a natural fibre as well and when they clean the tree of the pine, pine uh, needles, they use them for scratching up again so um, they're multi-purpose. Okay, so here we have uh, alpacas that eat Christmas trees and they do humming noises and they go to weddings in tuxedos, the brave ones and the confident ones, but they also spit as well. They that they have a bad reputation for spitting, <laughs> um, but they actually don't spit. Um, they only spit um, in very stressful um, situations or um, if they're being provoked. Or if they've been brought up um, in bad situations where that it's a learned behaviour, oh. but in general they don't spit. Um, they it's a last resort for them, and um, they don't like to spit. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like the taste of it, so they don't spit. It really is a last resort. So the only time we even kind of spit is when we're giving them vaccinations, or if they've been sheared you know, while we're shearing them, or something like that. Um, Never, they've never spat at us just for no reason whatsoever. So there's there is a reason, and uh, and it's something you look into if it if it does happen, but it, it hasn't happened. To God, that's a yeah, no, and it won't happen. It mm. won't happen in a normal general situation. It just won't happen. They just don't do it. Okay. Um, they have a bad reputation for it, but they just. They don't do it. Well, I'm looking um, at them here, Ellie, and I don't know how they'd have any bad reputation. They're gorgeous. Yeah. I wouldn't care if they did spit, but but I would worry now knowing what you've just told me. But um, they are gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. So give us your details now if uh, there's any uh, soon-to-be couples listening and they'd like to get in touch with you or just to go and visit the farm. I'm certainly going. I'll be ringing you after the show. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram and that's just the best way to contact us um, at the moment um, 
So it's the Boyne Valley Alpaca Farm. Yeah, Boyne Valley Alpacas and Valley Black Nose Sheep because we have pedigree sheep as well. Um, and we it's, that's what we are on Facebook and on, on Instagram. We're Boyne Valley Alpacas. Great, um, brilliant yeah. stuff. Well, listen. Ellie Moonen, thank you so much for telling us all about your gorgeous alpacas. And as I said, I'll be up to see them. I just say congratulations to Matty and Darren, who got married last uh, Friday. That they were the that was the wedding we went to, and they were brilliant. And all their guests were absolutely brilliant. They all came over. They were all very excited and got lots of photographs. And they've sent me a lot of photographs. Um, and it was just great to be there. And it's a lot of fun. Lovely, lovely. Well, congratulations to them and thanks for sharing that story. It's great to have you on the show, Ellie. Thanks a million for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. That's Ellie Moon in there from the Boyne Valley Alpacas uh, farm. Sounds absolutely gorgeous. That's it. We've run out of time. We'll have to hit the road. Thanks to all our guests and our listeners and to Louise Walsh, producer of the show. We'll be back tomorrow at half one. Eddie Caffrey's on the way. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.